Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. All right, everyone, good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started today in Acts chapter 6. If you are comparing your handout and the uh, schedule that I put on the top of the handout for every week, one of the things you'll notice is that we're not going to cover, likely not going to cover as much text as what I had hoped to in the handout previously. You may not have even noticed that, and that's fine. Um, we're going to try to get through all of this content uh, really by the end of April, first week of May is the, is the plan right now in case you're putting your schedule together. Uh, the other thing that, that I want to tell you is that spring break week, and I'll get you that date, um, that date uh, exact uh, to you a little bit later, but the second week, the, the end of spring break week is the week that we will not meet. Uh, so we'll have kind of one Sunday, a Sunday off there, and I realize some of you may have to miss the front end of that as well. Um, but our hope, hope is to get through. Um, what we will be able to do toward the end of the book of Acts is cover a wider section of text uh, in a you know, one-session time as Paul starts to make his missionary journeys. And we'll just get out a map and we'll make some observations of here's where Paul's at, and here's some of the things that happened in each of these cities, or here's some of the significance uh, of, of those things that took place in each place. Uh, we'll be able to move through a little bit uh, faster pace than what we are now uh, when it comes to our content. Uh, I actually wanted to slow down as I studied this passage this week. I went, ah, I want to spend a little bit more time on uh, Stephen's sermon or Stephen's speech that is here. It's one of the longest speeches in the book of Acts. And so by way of review, I want to back up just a moment and kind of, again, back up big picture. Where have we been uh, in the course of this study? And, and honestly, part of that, I'm kind of curious, what have you learned thus far? What, what has been interesting to you? What have you learned? I know that's asking you first thing in the morning to process you know, over a, a month of content. But what have you learned? What's been interesting to you? What stood out to you as new? That's where we'll start this morning. Anytime I ask, I'll just sit here awkwardly and wait, which is fine. <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah. For me, it's just, because uh, you know, I've read Acts numerous times, but, but just uh, diving deeper. Okay. Details or how okay. you say it. Yeah, just, just observing some things that are a little bit yeah. below the surface. Okay. That's helpful. Yeah, any other, any other observations? Any other thoughts? Well, you know, Jesus preparing his disciples uh, uh, for what dimensions were like. Maybe they have some preconceived ideas and stuff okay. on their minds of what, what's going to be like. And, okay. And he's going to give them prayer for what, what maybe a new meaning, maybe they understand all the okay. way in a sacrifice and, you know, yeah. can they do it, you know. That's, that's helpful. One of the things that's a difficult switch sometimes in my brain from the, the gospel uh, and Jesus to the disciples is that unlike Jesus, the disciples aren't like knowing where this is all going. So this is unfolding and they're kind of watching this unfold and, and they're like us are learning some of these things as they go. What kind of kingdom is this going to be? And it's unfolded in front of them. For instance, you know, in, in next week's lesson, we're going to talk about the Gentiles and, and Peter's going to have a vision. Oh, like I didn't know that's what you had in mind. And, and I saw glimpses of that, but do you really mean that? And, and so there's a dynamic here of, of the church is growing in their discipleship and still in their understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Okay? Do you think they feel more risk? Coming? I mean, I, I think they have to see a storm brewing. Yeah. And I mean, that's where we're getting in this text today. Is there's, there's some things that are happening that they're like, oh, Jesus is warning us about this. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, other observations, other, other things that stood up. Yeah. Also the 
back to the Holy Spirit. Okay, good. So yeah. I, I, that was kind of insightful. Good. I hope that that's part of the glue that sticks for you is the, the, the nature of prayer and the Holy Spirit. And that is, that is what allows the church to be effective is the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, Jesus continuing his ministry through the church, and not just the church getting some formulas right. So, so let me confess some things to you about kind of my upbringing and the book of Acts. Sometimes the book of Acts was merely used as a, I'm just going to say handbook, for lack of a better term, a handbook for how the church should correctly function. It's not necessarily a bad way to view it. I just want to say it's not the only lens or not the only way to view it. And, and so perhaps even a better lens is this question of discipleship. How do we continue the ministry of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of Jesus teaching us as his disciples? How do we continue? And here's my slogan. I've used it over and over again. How do we continue the ministry and the mission of Jesus even while we face the opposition that Jesus faced? And I know that y'all are like, please stop saying that. Um, but, but I want to have that anchoring point. And here's why. Stephen this week is going to face that opposition. And you're going to see that opposition echoes the opposition Jesus faced even more so than what Peter and John faced when they were in front of uh, the high priest on trial. Um, here we're going to have some words that are going to be spoken as Stephen's life comes to an end that are, it's going to be an echo of the cross. And, and so we're going to come to the first person to be killed as a disciple. First, we would say martyr, although that word really just means witness. It came to mean someone who dies because of their witness. But he's the first person. That martyr word is a, is a courtroom, law court word for someone who stands up and bears witness to Jesus. And the reason it's equated with death is because so many of them who did then died. Stephen being the first. And so we find that this placeholder in the same way. Did we have another first last week? We did. We had Ananias and Sapphira, a first, when it came to someone who is lying to the Holy Spirit or coming into the church under false pretense. And we find that judgment happened there. Guess what we're going to find? We're actually going to find the contrast this week is we're going to find that even though this person is going to be declared guilty, Jesus is going to declare them innocent. So I need you to see those two stories, even though it's two weeks in a row and a lot's happened between now and then, snow days and other things. Crazy this last couple weeks have been. Um, I need you to see those two stories in contrast to one another. Because Stephen and Ananias and Sapphira are definitely back-to-back stories. And that's helpful for us. Okay? We've also been weaving in and out. Just a reminder, this is just review. We've been weaving out the last few chapters. We talk about the, the nature of the church. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. But we've been ta- weaving inside and outside talking about the threats of the church. The threats inside the church and outside the church and inside the church and now again outside the church. And so we kind of come to this culmination of that section to where we have this external threat. A couple other things that just review for us. Chapter 6, verses uh, really 1 through 8. We talked about Stephen being chosen as one of the seven to serve the Hellenistic widows. Those would be Greek-speaking widows compared to Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows. We're still talking about the Jewish people now. We're going to get to the Gentiles later. But the word Hellenist, or the idea of Hellenistic, means Greek culture. And I know you're going to come across that word, so it's helpful for us to know what it means. The Jewish people, for hundreds of years, have been struggling with the temptation to be Hellenized. In other words, to give up their Hebrew culture, their Jewishness, and compromise and fold in or kind of just fade into uh, the Greek culture of the world around them as precedent. Obviously, now you have Romans as well. Romans and Greek culture, those, those things are merging in on them. 
We can get technical on that. I don't know that we need to. Uh, let me kind of just pause here and say, we can kind of watch this right now. Uh, we have a family from Afghanistan. I was out but, uh, butchering a sheep with them yesterday, right? Um, but culturally, they are living somewhat in, in an island of a culture with their Afghan friends, uh, that are refugees, in a culture that's very different than theirs. And one of the things they're going to have to figure out that's going to be just like if I were to go to Afghanistan or somewhere else is what are my essential cultural expressions and what are my non-essentials. But there are going to be some things you give up. Sometimes those things are dress. Sometimes those things are food. Sometimes those things are language. That's true of these Hellenistic Jews. They have been spread out into the Greek world. They now speak Greek. You can imagine how in Jerusalem you have Hebrew speaking, Greek speaking. There's a little bit of a faction there. But now, inside the church, we have Hebrew-speaking, Greek-speaking Jewish people, and the Greek-speaking widows are being neglected. Thus, the choosing of the seven to take care of these Greek widows. Those seven have Greek names. Okay? Stephen is one of those names. Philip is one of those names. Those will be the two characters, Stephen this week, Philip next week, that we're going to talk about. So these stories connect to each other and flow out of one another. When it comes to the story of these widows, notice that Stephen, like Philip and the other, the other five, um, were chosen because of their character, not just because of their ability. This is important when it comes to leadership in the church. This is nothing new. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when it comes to the choosing of, here's a word for us, deacons. Is they're, they're blameless. They're above reproach. This dynamic that the Bible cares about the character of leaders more than the competency of leaders or the gift sets of leaders is really important for us. Because sometimes in the church, we actually go the opposite way. where We're like, oh, they're really good at that. Let's choose them as a leader. And then we go, well, but they're not necessarily looking like Jesus all the time. The primary function of anyone who's a leader in the church, regardless of their task, is to lead people in discipleship closer to Jesus. So I want to take just a half a minute and talk about this word deacon. Because this word, we're talking about in our elders meeting right now, actually. Our elders meetings. We're doing some studies together. And, and this word deacon is the Greek word. And I do this with my students every semester. I love this, love this part. And, and sometimes I do this like with students at Missouri Southern. It's super fun there, too. And I ask, when I say the word deacon, what do you think? This man on the street. Okay, I'm bringing up a microphone. I say the word deacon. And it's okay, different backgrounds. When I say deacon, you think what? What do you think? What was that? Okay, people who cut the grass, someone who does maintenance. Okay, good. That's, that's good. Right. You're, you're feeding right into my thoughts, okay? Other, other thoughts? When I say deacon, you think, sometimes not a lot. Here's a question. I'm not going to ask you to answer because I don't want you to be like, I don't know, is he trying to make me look dumb? I'm not, okay? Does Christ Church of Rome, does CCO have deacons? Well, not necessarily with that label, okay? This is, this is a Greek word, okay, that's just transliterated. Okay, diakonos is the Greek word. Not that you need to know it, because you know the English transliteration, which is deacon. And you're like, well, that's helpful. We did the same thing with baptism, by the way, too. Baptizo, baptism is the so Greek, English transliteration. So, in other words, why do we struggle with knowing what that word means? Because we just transliterated it, because we didn't want to deal with the meaning. This word in Latin is where we get the word ministry or minister. Okay, Latin is ministre. So, when I say the word minister, what do you think? Probably someone who's paid on staff, I'm assuming. A profession, okay, which is kind of interesting. But when it came to an actual translation, and now you're like, boy, this is, 
this is really technical Latin. Um, well, this is really technical. When it comes to translation, what does this mean? Probably just means this, servant. Sorry, whiteboards are horrible for my handwriting. Just means servant. We could also probably say servant leader of some capacity. That word deacon, not the title, but that word is used throughout verses 1 through 8 there in chapter 6. Um, we should not neglect the ministry of the word, the serving of the word to go serve tables. This becomes this paradigm for those who are serving in the church, sometimes serving the word of God, sometimes serving in capacities like cutting grass. Unfortunately, in some churches, this is true of my upbringing, deacons all did the same thing, rather than responding to a need in the church. What's the paradigm for ministers or deacons here? There's a need, there's a complaint, and it's a legitimate complaint. And so let's put someone responsible for, a servant, responsible for taking care of that need and serving that particular table, serving that particular need. This is where that idea of ministers or deacons come from. Now, sometimes they're paid. We find that other passages. Sometimes they're just a servant leader. This is, by the way, some of you. Okay, when you serve in various capacities in the church and you have a leadership responsibility over an area, uh, this, this primary function is you. Unfortunately, some churches have deacons who do one thing, ministers who do another, and servant leaders, and we actually don't recognize where that actually comes from uh, in the biblical text. So this becomes a paradigm that's helpful for us, and it's not just because they had the ability to serve, it's because they had the character of Jesus. Because as they serve food, the goal is what? That they serve like Jesus. You want to look like Jesus? Be a servant. It's not a title, which is my fear of one of the things we've made in some of these offices in the church in our history, is we've made it an honorific title rather than a function. Okay, It's not a title, it's a function. It's a responsibility in the family. When my kids call me dad, it's not an honorific title, I promise you. It's a responsibility. Um, when I say someone is a mechanic, it's a function, a carpenter. It's a function. It's what they do. A florist. My mom was a florist. It's what she does. I say that word, you know what they do. Problem with the man on the street thing is I say this word and we actually don't know what they do. So this is why even here at Christ Church, you'll notice we use probably these two words uh, more often. And we're even trying to clarify what we mean by those right now. Because uh, it is helpful for us to understand. It's not a title. It's a function in the church of how do we take care of one another and some of the needs that are there. Well, when it comes to Stephen, one of the things we recognize is it is not a title. So it is more about what he's called to do. So notice they appointed him, though. So is it an official, we would say, is it an office? That's very American. I'm just going to say that right now. When I say the word office, we think voted. Okay, it is a function, but it's an official responsibility. So I use in the church, and you're like, I didn't ask for this. I know. Um, I use responsibility language in the church not office language in the church. Even when I'm consulting with churches on this topic, this is one of those areas I actually travel around to churches and talk about. Responsibility language instead of office language. Because it is about a duty they were given responsibility over. Then the apostles prayed, laid hands on them, and in essence commissioned them to have the ability and the character to carry out this task and then set them to ordination comes from this. All ordination is is appointing someone to a responsibility in the church and saying, you need to meet this need on behalf of Jesus. So, so look at some of this dynamic that's taking place here. And, and this is powerful. But what, one of the things we're going to notice with Stephen is it's going to get him in trouble because he's now going to be in an official capacity, a leader in the church, even though he's just taking care of Greek widows. Because what we find as we turn the page, 
is that as we see Stephen continue, um, he is going to, and here's where we start in our particular passage, chapter 6, verse 8, he is going to be doing wonders and signs amongst the people, like the disciples were. Verse 9 then says, and some who belong to the synagogue of freedmen. And then we go on and mention some, some different regions. So what we ask is this question, so what in the world is the synagogue of freedmen? Well, what's a synagogue? We actually don't know when the synagogue started. So let me kind of just talk about synagogues in the historical background for just a moment. We know this when it comes to uh, ancient Judaism. There was an epicenter to ancient Judaism from the time of Moses called the tabernacle that eventually transitioned into a building, a structure Solomon built in Jerusalem called the temple. So we kind of know Judaism is centered around the temple. Problem. 586 BC, you don't need to know this, necessarily memorize it, but it's good to have in your background. 586 BC, Babylon destroys the temple. Okay? I don't know why the sound effect, but hey, there's that. Sends everybody out of Jerusalem. Okay? Now they're in the greater Greco-Roman world. Greek slash Roman world. It's First is Babylonian, then it's per. You, you get the point, okay? They're spread out. And so the question becomes okay, what's the hub of Judaism? Well, synagogue means gathered together. By the way, church means the same thing. Uh, that's the German version of ecclesia, Greek. The Greek means gathered together. Um, so this dynamic is this question of how could we actually gather together? Well, it's symbolic of the temple, but it's actually what then gets called a synagogue. And somewhere in this time period, we don't know all the details of when and where these synagogues were started. So when you get to Jesus' day, you have two power structures. Because guess what? The temple gets rebuilt. Okay, temple gets rebuilt by Darius. Really gets rebuilt by Herod the Great, who puts a lot of money and time and effort into this, to kind of prove that he's a legitimate king. Now we have two structures in the Greco-Roman world. And the priestly family, the high priestly family, is the power broker over the temple. And the Pharisees tend to be the power brokers over the synagogue. And the Sanhedrin is kind of the ruling legal body. Uh, Now it's religious too. It's not like our legal system. That kind of is in between and emerging both of these. So we have this synagogue of freedmen. Freedmen, who are they in the Roman Empire? They're people who were slaves who either bought their freedom or served in the military and earned their freedom. That's all that means. But they're from the same kinds of places that Stephen and Philip and those Hellenistic Jewish widows were from. They're spread out. They're Greek culture Jews. So why do they have a problem with Stephen? Well, he's taking care of the widows that normally would have been taken care of in the synagogues, but they've converted to Christianity. You start to see the problem here? Okay, so they're from these regions that are spread out. And you notice that the text mentions all of these regions. And, and so this is part of the dyna- dynamic of why they're upset with Stephen and why this is taking place here. Again, we're going to find some of their motivations. So in verses 9, we find that they're from the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, Cilicia, and Asia. That's where Ephesus is at, by the way. We'll find it later in the text. And they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. Verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he was speaking. So they secretly instigated men who said, let me pause right there in verse 11. I'm going to put my coffee right there. Hopefully it doesn't spill. 
Um, this word secretly is actually an in, sorry, some of you looked at me like that's going to spell. Uh, this word secretly is interesting. It actually means to throw under. It's, it's two words put together in the Greek. It means to like throw under. I, I don't like, there's not a whole lot on this word in the word study uh, when you look at this Greek word, but doesn't that sound like we'd use like underhanded? They, lay, they threw under the table. Okay. Here's what you're going to start to see. Okay. You're going to start to see echoes of Jesus's trial. So start to trace some of these things. So they got witnesses. What were the witnesses at Jesus's trial saying? We heard him say. Okay. So we're going to hear some of those same things that are taking place. So watch for them here. They secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Pause. I list them for you in your handout, but I want us to pay attention to them from the text. My handout is meant to just be an observation of some things I've observed observing this week from the text. Two accusations against Stephen. Number one, he speaks against, this is this word blasphemy, okay? It sounds like a very religious word. We would maybe use the word slander. He's slandering, but there is a religious tone to it. It is irreverent slander. Um, So therefore, blasphemy against God or against the things of God. So he is blaspheming Moses and God. Why Moses? Because of the temple. Okay, But even in the synagogue, they had an altar that faced toward the temple. Synagogues are intriguing things. They're meant to be little little micro places that remind them of the temple, even when the temple is destroyed. They have an altar there that's called an altar where the Torah is. And it faces toward the temple. It's, it, those are, it's intriguing, the, the culture of the synagogue. So accusation one, blasphemy against God and against Moses. What was the accusation of Jesus? Blasphemy against the law and against God. He claimed to be God. That's a little different than what Stephen's claiming here. He's claiming Jesus is God. Um, blasphemy of the temple. Well, Jesus said, okay, you tear down this temple, I will rebuild it again. This is early in Jesus' ministry, but apparently it stuck. Because notice what Jesus said. You tear down this temple, and I will rebuild it. Jesus actually didn't say he was going to tear it down. He said they were going to tear it down. And he's talking about his own body. But later on in Jesus' ministry, farewell address, Jesus is getting ready to go with his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane. And they're like, look at these stones that they look at the temple. Look at all these stones. And they're picturing, I have a friend who said this, they're picturing their corner office in the temple because Jesus is going to be the Messiah. He said, this is as foolish as people looking up to the Twin Towers and saying, there's my new corner office the day before September 11th, 2001. Because Jesus is saying, these buildings are going to fall. And in fact, you can go to Jerusalem today and see where the stones, the Roman army in 70 AD pushed those stones off of the temple mount onto the pavement down below and cracked and dented in the sidewalk. Those stones have been pushed off. Now, the base of that's still there. Thus, we have the wailing wall. It's just the foundation stones. And some of those stones are about this size. That's about the size of that whiteboard over there, but about that height going out about this far. And they fit, stack on top of each other with no gap in between them. They're incredible. And they didn't build them there. They quarried them out somewhere else and brought them in. Herod the Great extended the platform, built the temple. And we have the temple still standing in this time period. So this threat that is there is still a threat that is hanging in the air. 
Verse 12, they stirred up the people. Uh, This word is not just the idea of stir up, but it's also kind of the idea of like throwing up or casting up. And so you can imagine, again, this riot that is somewhat stirring up the people and their emotions. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came and they seized Stephen. They brought him before the council. This is the synagogue, or excuse me, the Sanhedrin. Then they set up false witnesses who said, he never ceases to speak against the holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face, and his face was like a face of an angel. So question, did Jesus say that things would change? He did. He said that like 586 B.C., the temple is actually going to be destroyed again, and it was in 70 AD. We have a historical account of that. And so this is still in the future for them. And yet, what we also discover is that this temple is going to be used in Stephen's speech. Because one of the questions, there's going to be two questions to these two accusations. Did God's people ever worship God in a, place when the tem- in a time when the temple did not exist? Well, yeah, guess what? We're going to go back to Abraham. When Abraham had faith... And the temple didn't exist. So Stephen's going to go back and say, okay, it's not that we're living in unprecedented times. Just because the temple isn't here doesn't mean God can't continue to dwell with his people. So I want you to notice what Stephen does with it. It's not just a Sunday school history lesson. It is that. But he's actually responding to in his speech we're getting ready to talk about. He's responding to the two accusations. He's going to recognize that God dwells with his people even when the temple isn't there. And he's going to respond to the second one when it comes to the nature of Jesus and who Jesus is and how he was prophesied or promised throughout the entire Old Testament. Um, the fact that Stephen's face, um, notice this word. In fact, you might circle it for, uh, in your text in chapter 6. I'm trying to remember, verse 15. The word gaze. Because if you actually flip over, and I know we're skipping over a lot. We're, we're going to come back, so don't worry. If you skip over to the end of chapter 7, you're going to find that same word gaze there as Stephen is going to gaze up into heaven. Um, So this is in verse 55, 7 verse 55. You'll find that word gaze there. And I don't know that this is, you know, one of those things that I noticed before this time, but I actually went back and traced this throughout the entire book of Acts. This is actually a pretty important word. When Jesus ascends to heaven, guess what they were doing? They were gazing into heaven, seeing Jesus in heaven. Where is your gaze set is kind of an interesting concept in the book of Acts. And so this becomes an inclusio or a bracket around this entire body of text. So when they gaze at Stephen, he looks like his face is like the face of an angel. What does that mean? I actually had no idea, so I had to go back and look at that this week. Um, I'm like you all. I don't teach this in college, so I'm I'm actually just studying along with you all, trying to get prepped for this Sunday when I can. And, and here's, what, here's what I found out. Oh, this is actually not only in the Old Testament, but the Jewish literature of the time used this often to talk about people who had been in the presence of God, like Moses, had spent time with God, and therefore reflected the glory of God, like the angels who spend time. Where do the angels spend time? In the presence of God. They looked at him, and he looked like the face of one of God's messengers, is that word angel. And so he looks like he has been with God. He, I don't know what that is. Did they notice his contentment? his peace, his wisdom in that moment. Um, But there's something about Stephen in that moment. Now, later on, we're going to find Stephen's gazing into heaven, and he can see the very presence of God. I don't think that's on accident. 
Okay, so where, you, where do you spend time is one of those questions in this text. Apparently, Stephen has been already spending time with Jesus in this world and in this life, and he's just ready to enter into the presence of Jesus in the next life. I don't know about you, but that'll preach. That's one of those things that I need to learn to live in, is living in the presence of God in this life, so that when I come to the end of this life, I'm ready to receive, be received into the presence of Jesus, and it's just a coming home to where I've already been, a greater reality of that reality. We're going to talk about Jesus standing in, in that particular text in verse seven, or chapter 7, verse 55. But we want to start actually where we need to start, which is in chapter 7, verse 1. So Stephen is going to respond to the charges against him. And I want to look at these three bullet points in your handout and, and kind of summarize his speech. And then we'll walk through it a little bit more. Uh, but I want to notice these things. Um, Number one, Stephen is going to address the charge against blasphemy by showing that Jesus was actually the continuation or the fulfillment, there's maybe even a better word, the fulfillment of the Old Testament story, and Jesus is the one promised by Moses. So what what was the accusation? Blasphemy against God and against Moses. We're going to see Stephen say some things like this. When Moses was here, He said, one who is greater than me is going to come. A prophet greater than me is going to come. Stephen is just hinting at, no, he doesn't come out right and say it. You have to pick up on this. Stephen is hinting at, hello, he's here, y'all. Okay, so he's hinting at this through some of these stories. When Moses was here, you were stiff-necked. You rebelled. You worshipped an idol, golden calf. You wanted to go back to Egypt. Now, it's not Egypt anymore, but maybe it's Rome. You wanted your power, you wanted your comfort, whatever it might be. You didn't want to go toward the promised land, you wanted to go backward. So, so Stephen, in, here's, here's what I love about this particular, the more I read this, the more I'm like, he's actually putting them on trial with Jesus on the throne. Like Jesus is the judge, and scripture is the lens by which people will be judged. Jesus, the gospel is the lens by which people will be judged. And at the end of this story, Jesus is actually going to judge. He's going to judge Stephen but he's in the position of a throne as judge. And so, in many ways, Stephen, Stephen through this sermon slash lesson slash speech, is flipping the script and putting them on trial and showing that they are actually the ones who are guilty. They are the ones who have crucified, we've already heard this phrase, the author of life. Okay. So, bullet point number one, we want to watch out for that. Here's bullet point number two. Stephen will address the charge of threatening the temple by showing that God, we've already said this, was with the temple even before the temple was built. And that, here's an important thing, the temple can't even contain God. It is God's grace that they were able to build a temple to symbolize, we need to hear this, to symbolize the presence of God on earth. And to do that, we need to pause for just a moment. I don't know why I like the whiteboard so much. I'm a visual learner. So if you're not a visual learner, pardon me, okay? One of the things we sometimes fail to understand about the temple is the dynamic that it was meant to be a symbol of the entire cosmos. That the temple had inside of it a cube that was called the most holy place. Of course, this is where the altar or the ark, excuse me, the ark, I don't know what the ark looked like inside of there, but let's just put it to scale there. It's not to scale, I promise you. Here's what the, where the ark was, and this is where the presence of God symbolically would reside. To get in there, of course, you had to go through a curtain. This might be the curtain that was torn when Jesus was crucified. It may also be a curtain that was out here. 
But this curtain had embroidered on it uh, pictures of the cosmos, like stars and angels, cherubim. And it's meant to be a picture that God dwells in a place that is separate from us. And yet he chooses, he chooses to make himself known and that we are, he chooses to allow us to be able to enter into his presence through the blood of sacrifice. So the day of atonement, high priest only could enter into here. So when the curtain is torn, that's significant because now we don't need a high priest because Jesus is him and he's the perfect sacrifice. So then everything as you go outside of this holy place actually diminishes in its value of what it's built uh, so instead of gold, it becomes out here bronze. And it's, it's symbolic of, of the entire cosmos that we live in a world, but God chooses to come into this world and we actually gonna live in the presence of God. Now then Revelation actually says all of creation lives inside there now and puts us inside the presence of God. So what Stephen is saying is you can't build a building that holds God. It's actually just a symbol of the fact that the entire world is God's and God dwells with us and wants to encounter and meet with us here, but we need a sacrifice, okay? So, so what Stephen's going to say in his particular speech here is that the temple could never contain him. This was always a grace. And, and the church, we know this, becomes what is the presence of God manifest where people can come even outside of the church, where they can come and encounter the presence of God and the light of God here on earth. And inside the church, we have celebrated the day, the day of atonement and the perfect sacrifice. Like, this is where you come to find that, where you come to have access to that. So bullet point number three. Stephen's going to then raise the indictment uh, against his accusers and show them to be aligned against uh, God or rebel in rebellion against God, like Old Testament Israel. Questions about those three, and then we're going to walk through the story. We're going to walk through the story. Questions or observations about those three? Okay. Because, again, it's a long story. I actually had a good night story with my daughter. We've been trying to do... I set New Year's goals every year. I'm nerdy like that. This year has been hard because I feel like I've had like seven false starts already. Every time there's a snow day, I'm like, yeah, forget that diet. Um, and, and so there's a dynamic this year where one of my goals has been to tell Jesus stories to my kids at night, just to be more accountable. I, I can pray with them, but just tell them a story about Jesus. And sometimes those are stories in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. Well, my eight-year-old daughter is just getting old enough to where she's starting to recognize that these stories actually like fit together into one cohesive narrative. So... Her brother was off busy doing something else, and she got this story just by herself. I just started telling the story from Abraham. It wasn't because I was teaching this. I actually realized, oh, yeah, that's what Stephen did later. Um, told the story from Abraham to Jesus. And, and she's like, I know that story. She kept saying this. I know that story. I know that story. I know that story. Stephen, picture this. He's telling these stories to the high priests and the teachers of the law. Okay? I don't think he's just pandering them. I don't think he's even just mocking them. He's going, see, 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 I want you to see it. I want you to see it. I want you to see it. And he walks through these stories. So he starts with Abraham, right? And this is going back. And so he tells the story. And sorry, my, that circa 1000 BC is actually wrong there. So cross that out. I didn't know that was still in there. That's a typo from, from a previous heading. So we have Abraham who is sojourning. And God says, in faith, I want you to leave your homeland and I want you to go. And I want you to go to the promised land. And we have circumcision that is there. And the question that becomes a question for the church, and Paul's going to deal with this in Romans, is when did, when did Abraham enter into relationship with God? Was it after circumcision or before? Well, we find out it's his faith came before circumcision. 
Okay? So can someone believe in God and have a relationship with God and be a disciple or a follower of God without circumcision? This is going to be one of the questions that the church is going to continue to ask as Gentiles later on, so we'll unpack it further later, as Gentiles come to the faith. Do they need to be circumcised first? Well, we're going to keep coming back to Abraham throughout all Paul's writings and find that, oh, Abraham had faith and it was reckoned to him as righteousness even before circumcision. So Stephen goes back and tells the story. Then he gets to the son, Isaac, and he gets to Jacob. Just by way of reminder, Jacob's nickname is Israel because he wrestled with God. And he's given the name Israel. We've heard this recently, right? And that nickname sticks as the definition or the title for the nation of Israel. It's always kind of telling when your nickname is, you're going to wrestle with God. Yes, they did. And yes, we do. Okay? And so that's where we get that, that label or that name, Israel. And he is, therefore, the father of 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the patriarchs or the 12 tribes of Israel. I'd list them for you, but I can't memorize all of them. I've tried. I've memorized them and forgotten them multiple times. So obviously we know those 12 tribes, Judah being the one where the temple is, right? The tribe of Judah is now the region of Judea. Okay, so we have that dynamic that plays out. Um, so we have the 12 tribes that are listed. Joseph's going to walk through those. And then he's going to talk about one of the brothers named Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph? It's one of my favorite stories. And he says, and his brothers were jealous of him. Okay, pause. These are the kinds of details I need you to pay attention to. Because there's subtleties in the story that if you ask, why is he pointing this particular point out in the story? Because the brothers are jealous of the son of promise. And you have this dynamic where jealousy has actually already been mentioned twice in the book of Acts to describe those who are the Jewish leaders being jealous of Jesus or of the disciples of Jesus. That was the motivation in the Gospels. It's now been the motivation twice in the book of Acts for why they're responding against the church as it continues to grow and garner attention and cause an upset in the power structures. It's a threat to them and their power and their positions and their money, their industry, that is the temple. See, it's not so much about the temple. The temple is also, we know this, Jesus turned over the money, the money changers tables, I think, twice, once early in the book of John, at the beginning of his ministry, once at the end. So it's a threat to their position, their power, but also their money that is there. And so they're jealous. So now we have jealousy of Joseph, and this is what caused his brothers to throw him in a pit, sell him into slavery, send him to Egypt. Well, what did Jesus have? Well, they arrested him. They gave him to Pilate. They sent him out of the city. They crucified him. It's not a one-to-one. I recognize that. But I think, there's a, I think there's enough parallels there with the motivation where he is saying, and you're going to see this later, because he's going to explicitly say this, you're just like your fathers. This run, here's my tagline. This kind of behavior runs in the family. Okay? Now, I mean that somewhat humorously. Do you all have behaviors that run in your family? I do. It's part of the reason I moved 12 hours away from home. Sorry, mom and dad, if you're listening to the recording right now, right? There's behaviors that run in our extended family. And there's part of me that just goes, yeah, when I say to my kids, you're a Dalrymple, there's certain things that I actually don't mean by that, right? And and I don't know, maybe I'm alone on that. But Stephen's going to say some of these things run in the family. Now, faith, yes, but also rebellion, and idolatry, and some of the other things that go along with that. So in the story of Joseph, as you, as you read through this, and I'd encourage you to read through some of this on your own, and, and listen to some of these trends that play out. 
Of course, then he's just retelling the story. They end up in Egypt, these 12 sons that become the 12 tribes with 12 families, and Pharaoh dies and Joseph dies. And eventually, the new Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph, and those 12 tribes are there and they've grown and they become a threat. I'm just going to be honest with you. The, the more refugees we have, and I'm waiting for that undercurrent conversation to happen here. I don't want it, but I know those are the kinds of conversations that happen. Why? My hometown had refugees from Somalia. And those conversations started happening. Refugees is what these people were in Egypt. And they grew to the point where they became a threat. Huh, interesting how the same stories play out each time. No wonder we're called to be like people who are hospitable to sojourners. Okay, soapbox off. We'll keep going in the text, although I think it's biblical. Um, so we're there, they are there, of course. And then we have the infanticide that Pharaoh carries out. And Moses, this beautiful child, that's what his name means. What mom wouldn't call her son that. Uh, Moses, who's this beautiful child, is then threatened by this and then rescued. You go back to the story of Jesus in the book of Matthew. It's retracing the steps. Herod the Great, Joseph takes him into Egypt and then brings him back. Well, all we're doing is retracing the steps of Israel in Jesus's life. God is saying, I'm trying to tell the story again and do it in a way where my people are faithful and following and give them a second chance in Jesus. So some interesting things about Moses. Notice that we find in the book of Acts this structure of 40, 40, and 40. Um, I always found this interesting as, honestly, a young leader. God said, hey, I'm going to prepare Moses. He's not going to know how. I'm going to spend 40 years preparing Moses by giving him time to learn Pharaoh's court, Pharaoh's household. And then I'm going to take him, and he's going to be exiled outside of Egypt. And it's because he's going to want to save, that word's interesting here, he's going to want to save one of his own brothers but Moses, you can't save, only I can save. Interesting, okay? So he's going to actually be exiled, and he's going to spend 40 years out in the wilderness leading sheep, and leading sheep through the wilderness around the region of Mount Sinai. What's he going to do next? Well, he's going to go back to Pharaoh's court, have to have conversations in Pharaoh's court, and then take people, sheep that grumble, all the time, that's the word used of them all the time, out into the wilderness, and he's going to have to lead them through the wilderness for another 40 years. Like, maybe God has been actually spending a lot longer than you expected to prepare you for the thing that he really wants to do in your life. Um, we had 80-year-old ladies in our church up in Illinois who were still serving in children's ministry, youth ministry. We had a 90-year-old guy who was still serving with junior high boys. And there's part of me that just goes, like, how's God actually taken you? And, and maybe like, you know, 30 years here and 30 years here and 30 years here. And finally you get to 90 and you're like, oh, that's what God was doing. Like, I love that about Moses' story. He's 80 years old. He's like, oh, that makes sense now. And, and I'm, I'll be honest, like, I've seen that happen in my own life where I'm like, why did I? Like, I mean, here's just my story. I was a children's minister at Carterville in college. And I'm like, I don't want to do children's ministry necessarily. I did youth ministry for six months. I was a preaching minister. I, like, I had no idea where some of these things were going, but even some of my family background and some of those dynamics, how's God going to bring all these things together? I love that about Moses' story. But obviously, Moses is doing this to bring God's people out. Notice these verses. I point out two of them to you. Chapter 7, verse 37. Moses said, God's going to raise you up, a prophet like me from your brothers. Deuteronomy 18, 15. Okay, this is as they're entering into the promised land. Stephen is subtly again here saying, this is Jesus. Jesus is that prophet. How could you say I'm blaspheming Moses when all I'm saying is that Moses was right and that Jesus is that prophet? 
So he is, he is addressing their accusation. 7 verse 39. But our fathers refused to obey Moses. But instead, they thrust him aside, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They turned back to idolatry. Thus, we find then the story of the golden calf incident that is there. And you'll notice in that particular text of the golden calf in this sermon, there's actually going to be allusion that this idolatry was going to start at Mount Sinai. And notice this little like hymn slash psalm that goes through verse 43. That idolatry is actually going to lead them all the way to exile in Babylon. So this idolatry that started from the very beginning of the relationship with the people who wrestled against God is going to be this trend that leads them all the way to Babylon. And what's the accusation? You're just like your fathers who stood against Moses, rebelled against Moses, worshipped idols instead of worshipping God, gold instead of God, and so you were exiled. And so I erased it already. And so the temple was eventually destroyed. Oh, So he's addressing multiple accusations, even with some of these very lines that he uses there. So the last thing then we find is that we have this tabernacle that is then at the end of this story, finally built. And so we get to verse 50 and and we come to the end of this story. And I know we're somewhat summarizing it and pointing out some things, but we get the end of the story and he's talked about then Joshua and the promised land and David. And eventually we get to the temple and he says, here's this story. I've told this entire story that is played out in front of you. Verse 51 is where we want to land next, but I want to pause before we do. Any, any observations or any questions? I've had to give you that in summary form instead of just reading the entire sermon for you. But any questions or observations? Things that you find interesting or new? Okay. I would encourage you to read that sermon. Again, it, is, it would take us 10 minutes of our time together. But I would encourage you to read it. And, and honestly, it's kind of a good overview of the entire Old Testament. To go, here's how these pieces fit together. Uh, I was an 18-year-old freshman at Ozark Christian College um, when I had to take a class in the Old Testament, and it was the first time I realized, hey, like these things actually go together. Because I, you know, I'd been in junior church and Sunday school. Sorry, we called it junior church back in the day. We didn't have cool names like Kids Club Live. Um, we had junior church, right? Final boards. And and so I had, even in high school, had all these like independent Old Testament stories. But I'd never really had someone show me how they all interlock together and how they all build together and how the prophets are at the same times as a lot of the kings and how the prophets are sometimes addressing some of the rebellions of the kings or of the people during that and how all of it is trying to point, point forward to God's faithfulness, that God is going to be faithful even if you are not and that Jesus is ultimately this response of God's faithfulness that says, see, here's my fulfillment of that promise. So when John the Baptist comes on and says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here, It's actually a response to everything that has happened and all that God has promised in the Old Testament. And that's exactly what Stephen is doing here, is he's saying God is continuing his faithfulness even when you are in rebellion. So I've given you five bullet points for verses 51 to 53. I'm going to read it first, however. So if you would, in your Bible, chapter 7, verse 51. Stephen says this, You stiff-necked people. Now, I've given you a list. I don't know if it's like seven, ten references in the Old Testament where this is used of them. I don't know if you've ever dealt with someone who was stiff-necked before. Um, my kids, when they were little, I would put my hand on their neck and try to direct them into traffic here at the church until they got old enough. And they're like, stop, like, stop doing that, Dad. Um, they, they'd stiffen up their neck. I'm not going there. An animal does this. I was out with a goat yesterday while a sheep was being killed, and I was hanging out with this little goat that was kind of a pet. 
And as I would hang out with its horns and pet it, I'd push against its horns because it was wanting to butt up against me. I'd push, and what did it do? It'd stiffen up its neck, right? I'm not doing what you want me to do. And then it got out of the gate. Probably my fault because I left the gate open. I had to go back and get this little goat and I had to pull it back in. What did it do? It stiffened up his neck. I'm not going there, right? And this is exactly what this reference is, okay? You're just like your ancestors. Now, what are these people? They're nomadic, shepherding people. Do they get that reference? Yeah, they get that reference, okay? So, so he's going to use a reference that has a story behind it. You're just like your family. This runs in the family. You're stiff-necked people. You have uncircumcised. Uh, you are uncircumcised in your heart and ears. Now, we know what circumcision is. If you don't, we can have that conversation later, or have that with someone else. Um, but here's the dynamic: when the Old Testament, God uses this phrase to say, "Oh yeah, you're religiously circumcised. Great, but your heart's not in the right spot." And, and so, your heart is not mine. It's not marked by me, and your ears are not listening. And, and so this becomes a, a reference point. Even Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, over and over again, he goes to the heart of the matter, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, you can have these religious customs on the outside. But, I, I mean, at some point, sacrifices are just noise and smell and sound if your heart's not in the right spot. So, so God, this isn't nothing new that God wants your heart. This was true in the Old Testament as well. And so I want us to understand that continuation that takes place. That, again, like what Jesus says, you're whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look pretty, but on the inside, it's ugly. Now, as a youth minister, I'll tell you this story. And sorry, I didn't plan on telling you this story. I was a youth minister. I was young. You have to forgive me. I thought, you know, I'm going to tell that story of Jesus talking about the Pharisees and whitewashed tombs. So I had someone who worked for the Illinois Department of Transportation. His job was to pick up roadkill. And it was Christmas time. We were getting ready for Christmas time. And so um, I asked him, hey, could you find me something that's dead? Not too dead, but dead, dead. And, and bring it in, and I'm going to wrap it in a Christmas present and have the youth group unwrap this gift. You see where this is going. I'll probably get arrested for this today, right? It's already dead. I didn't kill it. And so uh, I had some ladies in the church who wrapped I can't wrap presents for anything. Just ask my wife. But I had some ladies in the church who got wrapping paper, and they brought... So he brought in a raccoon. It hadn't been dead long, but it, it was dead. It was dead. And we put this dead raccoon in this box, wrapped it up, and had it up front. We have a, and, and we didn't have to say anything to the youth group. They're like, what's in that? That's, like, that's immediately what they're going to say, right? What's in that? Is that for us? What? And they're just waiting for the surprise. And, and of course, we're, I, I just teach the lesson. You're whitewashed tombs. Like I, I, they should pick up on this at some point, right? And at some point, this should have to be the aware. And then I have one of the students. Um, I pick someone who I know whose parents are probably not going to sue me. Um, and so I, I, you know, I'm foolish, but maybe not that foolish. And so they unwrap this gift, and then there's this like, oh, like, this is part of that dynamic, and, and Stephen is recognizing this. And so we've already seen this contrast between Peter and John and those who are seen to have been with Jesus, but also that renovation of the heart, that remaking of the heart that I want to pay attention to that the Holy Spirit is involved in. So when we talk about fruit of the Spirit or the works of the Spirit, the Spirit is responsible for coming in and helping us remake ourselves into the image that we are designed to be after all. So this is Old Testament pouring back into this text. Uncircumcised and hardened ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so you do. And that's really where I want to circle that phrase. Like, that's the phrase that Stephen is getting at with the entire message. Is as your fathers did, so you do. Then he goes on in verse 52. Which of the prophets... Did your fathers not persecute? Jesus said the same thing, didn't he? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who persecute the prophets. He said that at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. 
he said at the end of his ministry. So we find this trend. You oppose the people that God chose to come speak to you. They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. This is, I believe, the third time. I'd have to go back and count. But I believe the third time that the high priest's family has had the disciples of Jesus say, you murdered the righteous one, the author of life, you killed him, you killed him. Okay, they're on trial. When they are, they are anticipating being the ones who are putting people on trial. And so here's this reversal language that's taking place. Verse 53, and you, receive, and you who received the law as delivered by angels, there's that word as angels, you did not keep the law. So what's Stephen saying? You say that you're those who keep the law, but you're actually the ones who are breaking it. Now, I find it intriguing over and over again. Jesus, you're healing on the Sabbath. How can you be that kind of Sabbath keeper? And so they left and they decided and they, they discussed how to kill him. You see what just happened there in the text in the Gospels? Okay, They were saying, Jesus, you're breaking the law. And then they went out and they had a meeting on how to kill Jesus. Over and over again, they show themselves to be the ones who are actually the breakers of the law. And this is not speaking of, I want to be very clear, we do this every week, this is not speaking of all Jewish people. Okay, These are still Jewish people. Stephen is still Jewish. Okay, he is, he is recognizing this is the faithful remnant of the Jewish people who are following their Messiah. Later, the Gentiles will be invited into the party. Okay, this is a Jew, still a Jewish movement that is taking place, and it will always be the main root of Jesse that grows. So we want to pay attention to that dynamic that plays out in this particular story. Verse fifty-four. We turn the page to finally their response. Yeah. Paradigm of the Pharisees and Sadducees, so they clearly had respect for Moses. Yeah. But then the Jews over time, God gave them prophets, yeah. killed the prophets, but then their writings are it's, put in. It's really helpful. Yeah. And then they, um, you know, at some point we start. They start yeah. to respect the prophets. Yeah. The Sadducees, as a as a party, and this is, I'm going to speak in kind of generalities. I'm sure that there are exceptions to this. And sometimes scholars are guilty of this. Sadducees tended to use the Torah only as their primary religious literature. So we're talking about the first five books of the Bible. So the Torah, writings of Moses. It would be the Pharisees would have then included the other literature as primary or canon in in their uh, teaching. Uh, that does not mean that the Sadducees does not, do not recognize them, but they would have seen that as like core canon for them. Why? Well, because they're in charge of the priestly system, thus Leviticus being responsible for festivals and sacrifices and those things. So there's some political differences. Here's a couple other things, our, our religious differences. Politically, they're different as well. Um, and I, I erased it, um, but let me redraw it because I think it's helpful. It's a great question. The Sadducees... Their political alignment was around the temple and the priestly family. Again, speaking in generalities, they tended to be um, connected to the temple and Jerusalem. So they have an alignment here. The Pharisees, we already mentioned, connected to the synagogue. But the, the interesting thing about this is the temple, the high priest, was appointed by Rome. So if you want to ask the question about political alignment, the Sadducees tended to have a Roman political alignment so they could maintain their power. This is why you have Caiaphas, who's high priest, 
but his father-in-law is still the Jewish recognized high priest, Annas, because the Jews said you were high priest for life, but the Romans said, well, yeah, but you're our puppet. We're going to do what we want. So he was the godfather. So this political alignment here makes them very different than the Pharisees, who are responsible dominantly as leaders here. And they wanted to, through religious reorganization, or in other words, through righteousness, bring us out of exile and really, in opposition to this, wanted to restore some of this to what it should have been all along. So get rid of some of the corruption. So there's a, there's a tension between these two. Um, in this group, uh, and I would say it's probably overlapping here, is a group called the Herodians. These would be people who would have also alignments with Rome, but it's more through Herod. And so there's political factions that are going on there. So there's religious as well as political factions that have to do with money and political uh, gravitational uh, hotspots and those types of things that are there. Is that helpful? Yeah. Would, so would the Sadducees, would they have agreed with Stephen that, yeah, our ancestors did the wrong thing and put the people of God to death? Like, would they have respected I think they, and Yes, they would have definitely done that. I think Stephen here is saying, you're thinking you're acting like the, like the faithful remnant. You're actually acting more like the unfaithful remnant. He's, he's rewriting their story to cause them to see themselves as a different character. But they would have recognized the other group as unfaithful, like they did the wrong thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a, it's a great point. So, so notice even when Jesus approaches these two, he approaches the Pharisees and he deals with what? Their heart on the outside, or their life on the outside is not the same thing as their heart on the inside. He deals with that, woe to you, Pharisees, teachers of the law. Okay? So that's this group. Because they, they want to do what? The legalism, we would say legalism, although that's a loaded word in our world today. But they would want to they would have, to have the right actions to be able to bring about the restoration of the promises, whereas they see corruption here. Now, this group, going back to the Torah, did not believe in the resurrection or angels. Okay, so Jesus would sometimes show that these two groups are in opposition to each other. So sometimes they'd come and question Jesus, they'd come aligned to each other, and he's like, You guys can't even agree with each other. And, and so we have these two dynamic groups that are playing out here. The, these, these two groups are represented in the Sanhedrin. So Stephen is addressing both of them, but they're both going to hear different things that are, for, for instance, face of an angel. Like this group doesn't even recognize uh, resurrection or angels. So that's interesting. High priests would be in this group. Okay. Okay. Other, other questions? Those are great questions. Okay. I want to get. Yeah. He's a Pharisee. Yep. He's a Pharisee. And again, remember, he's not from Jerusalem. All these trained under Rabbi Gamaliel, um, but he, he is from Tarsus, and so he is from a region that's outside of that, but he's trained as a Pharisee. And he would say, Hebrews of Hebrews, Pharisees of Pharisees, which he would be on. I was up there, and it was all garbage. Okay? Let me, let me get to this last stoning of Stephen. You, you know this about Stephen, and I know that it's time to go. Let me, let me walk through this briefly. Um, first of all, you'll notice their anger. Uh, literally, the phrase there is, their hearts were torn in two and they gnashed their teeth at him or they ground their teeth. Have you ever had someone so mad that their jaw was clenched? We know that that's what that is. Okay? Some of you have seen kids that way. Okay? So they're, they're enraged. It's a, it is a stark contrast to his face being the face of an angel. We have, we have this heart that is now show, manifesting itself on face. But Stephen now gazes into heaven, and he sees the glory of God. And you have to hear his own sermon in that, or his own speech in that, because what did he say about Abraham? Abraham saw the glory of God. So here's this faith echo in Stephen. But the part that I want to get through that's most important to me is this vision he has of Jesus. It's out of Psalm 110. 
And you can turn there to make sure that I'm right. But in Psalm 110, Jesus is seated next to the throne of God. And in fact, you can go to all these other references I give you. Luke 22, Acts 2, and Jesus is seated next to the throne of God. So, why is he standing? Now, first I got to say, I don't really know. Second, I got to say, here's what I think is going on here. Okay? I think this is typical law court language. Jesus is given a position as a mediator in the cosmos, the, the, the creation of God. He's given a position in the throne room of God, and he stands up now in one of two possible ways. Number one, as a mediator on Stephen's behalf in this courtroom. That's important. He stands up and says, let me speak for Stephen. If you have Jesus speaking for you, you're going to be okay. Okay, so they're going to declare him guilty, but Jesus is going to declare him innocent or righteous. That would be their word in English. Okay, he's going to declare them, him righteous. That's one possibility. That, that, first of all, gets me choked up to think about. No matter what the world says, no matter what people say about you, what does Jesus say about you? That's what matters. Now, as someone who like, sometimes wants to please people, what does Jesus say about you? That's what matters. In the law court, in the courtroom of this world, what people think about you, ultimately it is, what does Jesus say about you? Whoever acknowledges me before men, what does Jesus say? I will acknowledge them before my Father who is in heaven. I think that is an echo of what's taking place here. All of the other texts, Jesus is sitting. Stephen's the first one to die. Let me stand up. Okay, the other possibility is Jesus is coming to welcome. Um, this, is, this is similar language that would be used of like return of Jesus kind of language uh, where he is on the throne of God, but he gets up. But now he's actually getting up to welcome Stephen home. Notice we have gazing. Chapter 1, verse, I think it's 10. Sorry for not having that memorized. They gazed up to heaven and saw Jesus leave. Now Stephen's gazing up to heaven, and Jesus is going to bring him home. Oh. Yeah, that's, like, sometimes you see those connections, like, that's really there. Like, that's there. And I I find this, this particular text intriguing to me, but also think about the encouragement for the early church with this. That no matter what happens to you, Jesus is going to declare you innocent. What do we find there? These echoes of the cross. Notice we find, Lord, receive my spirit. Don't hold this against them. Father, forgive them. All these echoes. And we find a character that we're going to pick up on later who is there. Young man standing there, receiving their garments as they stone him. Why? Because it's a messy thing. Not to be overly brutal. But they take their outer cloaks and they put them here. And it's also this sign of his approval. And his name is Saul. We're going to know him later as Paul. But can I just like point forward? And I'll take two minutes to do this. Is all, and then we'll be done. Second Timothy is Paul's farewell address. And this story, you can imagine for Paul, was formational. Paul's going to say two things there. Father, forgive them. And I don't think it just echoes back to the cross. I think it also comes back to this story. He's going to talk about his cloak. Go get my cloak, 2 Timothy. There's all these little echoes in the story where I think Saul is an old man now in that story, is reliving this story and is grateful for the forgiveness of Jesus and the forgiveness of Stephen in this moment. Because he's going he's gonna to say in, in 1 Timothy, he's going to say, I was the foremost of sinners. He's, I've given you multiple references of him using this kind of language. I was the first place sinner. I was a blasphemer. Oh, you needed to hear that. I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent is what Paul says in 1 Timothy. What have they accused Stephen of? Blasphemy and being an insurrectionist. 
or that opponent. So Paul later on in his life and goes, he, he recognizes what Stephen recognized in this. I was guilty in that moment that we declared Stephen guilty. And it's only, he says, I was, I was given mercy to be an example that if Jesus could forgive me, he could forgive anyone. So we need to hear this story back through the lens of the cross and the echoes of the cross. But even beyond that, the echoes of the faithfulness of God to his people, the grace of God to his people. And then we need to look forward into our own stories, into Saul's story and into, into our story to recognize when I look back, I was guilty. But Jesus came and God is faithful and I can be forgiven. And I can, like Stephen, come to the end of my life and see Jesus stand declare us innocent, righteous. Paul comes to the end of 2 Timothy and says, and it was given to me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Why does he say that? Because Rome is getting ready to say guilty and put Paul to death. Same story, third verse. So we can come to the end of our life and say, I've poured out my life and Jesus is going to give me a crown and he's going to welcome me home. I love this story. It's part of the reason I want to say, let's go ahead and focus in a little bit more here. Where are we going next week? Stephen is one of the seven. We're going to talk about Philip. And then we're going to see how this persecution, I've listed, we're going to come back to verses 1 through 4, chapter 8 next week. But I want you to notice one word. This word scattered. The root of that word is the word for seed. Persecution makes the disciples go out, and God's going to take that seed, and like the farmer, he's going to take, start taking that gospel seed, and he's going to spread it around. And it's going to go north, and it's going to go south, and it's going to go out eventually all the way to Rome. But we're just going to start in kind of the region around Judea and Samaria and watch it start to go that direction. That's where we'll be next week. Thanks for taking some extra time today. We'll see you then. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.